Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. And I'm going to have you stand in a moment, but I want to say something first. I hope that the words that you hear from me on an ongoing, consistent basis after saying hello when I'm up here is, please open your Bibles. I actually hope that you could go through 10 years of sermons online and, and hopefully 80, 90, 95% of, of the words you hear at the very beginning of my sermons is, open your Bibles. And I have a reason for that. I have a very specific reason for that, because I want you to know that I'm up here, and I say this pretty often, to preach the inerrant, inspired, infallible word of God. I'm not here to make you, you know, feel good about yourself, or to entertain you, or to build my reputation, or whatever anyone might think of doing when they stand up before a group of people to open up God's word. Anybody who stands up here at Grace Orange wants to humbly and faithfully and accurately and engagingly open up the Word of God and trust the Holy Spirit to do what only the Holy Spirit can do in us and through us. And I want you to know that. I really do. It's, it's very serious to me. And I want you to know that at Grace, we consider the Word of God to be sufficient and authoritative and, and that means it's binding upon our lives. And so I'm going to read it right now. I want to invite you to stand up. And I'm going to read Acts 20, verses 28 to 36. I'm going to be preaching today some of the same verses I preached last week, just from a different angle and going deeper on a few things. So Acts 20, verses 28 to 36, we're going to see today five temptations of life and leadership. So let's first hear the word of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance amongst all who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would have your way in our hearts today, that we would be open to what you want to teach us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So I want to build off of what we saw last week. What we saw last week in Acts 20, verses 17 through 38, is a servant shepherd's heart, a consistent life in ministry, a dependent preaching and teaching, and persistent love and care. And I want to go deeper on those ideas today with regard to our relationships with God and the body of Christ. Now what we have here in this passage is a beautiful picture of beautiful fellowship amongst fellow believers. What I like to call caring and sharing Christ-centered community. Paul is speaking to the elders of the Ephesian church, and last week we saw this. There are three terms for the same group of people, this plurality of leadership. Elders, overseers, and shepherds. Elders, spiritually mature men, overseers, leading by example, and shepherds, feeding the flock, teaching the word of God. And also what is being referenced here is the flock, fellow servants of Jesus that follow the example of the leaders that the Holy Spirit has given to the church. We see a great relationship between Paul and these Ephesian elders, uh, between God, Paul and God, and between Paul and others. And what we can see in this passage by way of contrast are five temptations of life and ministry and leadership that we need to steer way clear of. Because when Paul was speaking to these elders, what he was telling them is, I'm basically defending my ministry. I am being you know, accused of all these things and I'm not doing those things. 
And the five temptations that we see here are really the types of things that Paul was being accused of. So we need to steer clear of these things. Here he was describing his life and his leadership amongst the people, and he's warning the leaders, and he's warning the church, do not waver. Do not fall prey to these things. And so we're going to be able to apply these things to our relationship with God and, and, and others and, and even things like elections. We all know we're going to be, you know, um, electing a new president in two more days. And it has been, uh, the first time I ever got to vote was 1980. And that was a privilege. It still is. It's a privilege I take seriously. And I think this is the most divisive and hateful election cycle that we've ever been a part of in our lifetimes, is it not? And we are seeing this all the time. There are sparks are flying left and right. And a lot of people are riled up. They're, they're, a lot of people are very entrenched in their opinions. And the part that I'm most concerned about is that a lot of Christians are riled up amongst each other and even at each other because of their stated positions. It's like people will say, hey, we're one in Christ. Oh, but you have a different political view than me? Can't be your friend. You're not coming to my home group. Gonna, not going to invite you to my party. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. There's a lot of issues at stake, of course. Uh, a lot of people underthink them. A lot of people overthink them. Even the people that pretend like nothing's happening. Everyone seems to be a political expert today. Everyone's got their opinion, right? But here's what I'm seeing. That this whole scenario that is playing out before our very eyes is a microcosm of our lives. What I mean by that is that you name the issue. You just name whatever issue you want to name. How we deal with those issues reveals in micro what is already existent in macro in our own hearts. It's just revealing what's already there. How we navigate even an election cycle like this shows what's already present in our hearts, in our lives. I'm convinced of that. Think of this. What if there was a microscope that could somehow you know, be placed in this room, and one by one, we just start over here and go through every single person individually, and you'd have like five seconds where up on the screen, the microscope would reveal everything that's in your heart. Pretty frightening, right? Pretty frightening. But here's what we need to remember. God knows and God sees our hearts. God is omniscient. He knows all. He knows our hearts. That's what the scriptures tell us. Jeremiah 17, 10. God says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind, even to give each man according to his ways. 1 Kings 8, 39. You alone, O Lord, know the hearts of all the sons of men. Jeremiah 12, 3, you know me, O Lord, you see me, you examine my heart's attitude toward you. 1 Chronicles 28, 9, the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. And Psalm 44, 21, God knows the secrets of the hearts. So you encounter dilemmas, you encounter, I don't know, all sorts of issues, uh, Maybe it's a family crisis where people are in dispute. Maybe it's a neighborhood issue, or maybe it's a contentious election. You're faced with a question. If you're a professing believer, you're faced with a question. What does it mean to be a Christian living in the world but not of it? And you're faced with a decision. What am I going to do? What are Christians supposed to do? And, and your answer to those two questions has deep ramifications for your life, not just today or tomorrow or Tuesday, but really for as many days as God has you on earth. Because what happens is, no matter what the issue, and we have a tendency to, to really magnify issues, don't we? Whatever the issue, there are much bigger things in play than what you just see. Things of much greater magnitude and importance. So the idea of the question, what does it mean to be a Christian living in the world but not in it but not of it, it's a simple answer. It's a biblical answer. We're not our own. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Therefore, we are to glorify God in our bodies, meaning that as many days as God gives you on earth, as a believer, you are to glorify God. Paul makes it very clear that whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So our, our aim, our, our um, 
Our desire, our ambition is to be pleasing to God. Now you get to the specific decisions. What should I do? What am I supposed to do? Here's the answer. No matter what, you are to do what Christians are supposed to do. And where do you find out where Christians are supposed to do? Help me out here. From the Bible. We've got the word of God. And, and, and so this is where we're going today, okay? This is where we're going to go when we see these five temptations. But I want to give you the bottom line on top. I want to give you what the big idea is, and it's this. Here's my premise. True love leads to true liberty. True love leads to true liberty. That when Christians love Jesus and live in peace with one another, they are free, they have liberty to reach a waiting and watching world with the gospel. That's the idea. Paul is exhibit A here. He was free to preach the gospel because he wasn't hindered by unconfessed sin. He wasn't hindered by unreconciled relationships. He was, he was not harboring hatred and animosity. He was trying to help others. He's talking to these elders, and he's saying, this is what you need to do to, to take care of Christ's church. And the result is very clear, and it's a result that we want, but we don't always see. Gospel impact on a godless culture. Gospel impact on a godless culture. Now, we know that Jesus is in process of making the church his beautiful bride. We are the bride of Christ. He is preparing us. But we know this from our own lives. We just look in the mirror. We just examine our own hearts. And here's what we know. That we do not always reflect the beauty of Christ. We want to. But we don't. But to do that, we must steer clear of these five temptations of life and leadership. So let's dive in. We'll start at verse 28 and go right through this passage. Temptation number one. The first temptation is to be careless. To be careless. To not watch over your life. To let things go. To, to not be watchful. To not be careful. To be careless. Verse 28. Pay careful attention. That means to take heed, to be mindful, to, to watch. What are you to be mindful of? What are you to take heed of? Yourself, first and foremost. Your own life. He's telling the elders, you need to pay, pay careful attention. Don't be careless about your own life. And also to all the flock. Also to all the flock. That we, all believers are called, and especially the leaders in the church, are called to walk circumspectly. It's the idea of like how a chicken walks, you know, where they kind of push their, their head out, you know, so they can, their eyes can see all around them. We're to be careful about how we walk, not being unwise. We're to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. We are to be self-aware. A lot of us are very other-aware when it comes to how people treat us, whether they ignore us, whether they're unkind, how they might talk with us and to us, but how often are we sensitive to how the, our words and actions affect other people? That's the first calling for a Christian if you're going to be examining something, examine your own heart and your own life and say, how do I affect other people? Examine yourself. Socrates said the unexamined life isn't worth living. Paul is saying you need to be very careful, very watchful, very mindful about your own life, but also about the flock, about the rest of the church. It's not just, hey, it's just me and Jesus. The church is important. The church was bought with Christ's own blood. How often do we say, well, you know, I don't really care about other people as long as everything's okay with me. Isn't it true we form opinions about people before we ever get to know them? We just look at them and, and say, well, this is, must be how they're like. You know, I knew someone once that looked like them, and they must be just like them. Or what happens is once we do get to know someone, we find out that we disagree on something that's peripheral, something that's not essential for salvation, and we say, you know what? I'm going to reject that person. I'm not going to hang out with that person. I don't want to be friends with that person. How often do we do that? It doesn't matter how old you are. You can be old, young, middle-aged, whatever you think you are, and, and, and you can do these kind of things with people. One writer wrote this about shepherding the flock. If you try to lead or feed sheep 
without loving them first, you may get bit, or worse, ignored. And, and Paul is saying you need to care for the flock, knowing that all the flock isn't going to be right with you all the time, that there are some that are lured back into the world and that you need to uh, seek the lost and bring back the scattered, restore those who have strayed. And he says, care for God's church, which he purchased with his own blood. That Jesus shed his blood to pay for our sins. He was buried, he rose from the dead, and he reigns forever. He is returning personally, visibly, bodily, soon. Some of you today might say, well, I don't believe any of that. And I would just say, I am so glad you're here today. And I can tell you that the Bible is very clear about this. You can't save yourself. And that Jesus Christ is the only solution for mankind's sin problem. And that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you place your faith in him. You place your trust in what he did at the cross in pain for your sins, that you will be saved. That Jesus wants you right this moment to turn from your sins and turn to him by faith. In faith, believing who he says he is. And, and the awesome thing is, Jesus welcomes all who come to him by faith. Isn't that awesome? But we need to humble ourselves before God and man because we are very prone to be very careless, to think that we know a lot of things, but really we, we fall into that 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 mode of not being able to live with a clear conscience between God and man because we've been careless about our own life or our treatment of others in the body. Paul lived with a clear conscience before God and man and is what we all want. But to do so, we need to be obedient to him. But the first temptation really is to be careless and, and that's why it's called out right away. Be careful about your own life and also the flock. Let's look at the second temptation, verses 29 and 30. Not just to be careless, but temptation number two, to be self-seeking. To be self-seeking, to seek attention for yourself, to draw people to yourself rather than to Jesus. That temptation would have been there because Paul said this, verse 29, after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. In verse 30, he says the most chilling thing of this whole passage. He says, from among your own selves, from among the professing church, from among the body will arise men speaking twisted things, perverted things, to draw away the disciples after them, to, to keep, get people away from Jesus and to their point of view. How, many, how often do we want people to align with our little puny ideas? We think we're so smart, we think we're so intelligent and somehow we just want to to get everyone to think our way. I want you to turn to John chapter seven, and I want you to see a, a setting where Jesus is at the Feast of Booths, and midway through the feast, verse 14, Jesus goes up to the temple and begins to teach. And the Jews are marveling. Here's Jesus teaching the word of God, and the Jews are saying, how did this man get this learning because he's uneducated. You know, we know where he didn't go to school. And here's Jesus' answer. He says this, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Who sent Jesus. Help me here. Who sent Jesus? God the Father. So God the Father sent God the Son, and then God the Son sent God the Spirit. But here he's saying that my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. It's from God the Father. And then he says this, if anyone's will is to do God's will, if you want what God wants, you will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. He says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. So when we're going around just kind of spouting off our own ideas that aren't in line with the word of God, we are seeking our own glory. Here's what Jesus says. The one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. He's talking about himself, God the Son, Jesus there is no falsehood in him. But Paul is saying there are going to be people who come in and they're going to speak twisted things. They're going to be seeking their own glory. They're going to be speaking on their own authority. 
By the way, let me talk to you about what Christians should and shouldn't do with each other, especially when it relates to elections, especially as divisive as the one we're in. Christians shouldn't tell each other who to vote for or what to do in a host of other situations of life. You can't go up to a Christian and say, you need to do this because, you know, if you do that to me, I'm going to say, well, can you show me in the Bible where it says I should do that? Okay? The Bible is very clear about to your own master you will stand or fall, and yes, you should care about your brothers and sisters in Christ, but you answer to Jesus, and you need to base your decisions on biblical truth. This whole idea of being fully convinced in your own mind about what you're going to do does not mean that you come up with an idea all by yourself and tell yourself, you know, I'm fully convinced in my own mind, and then you start putting ads out and say, I approved this ad, I approved my own ideas, okay? You don't do that and then say, God is behind this. That's not the idea. The idea of being fully convinced in your own mind about what you approve is that you're basing your decisions on biblical truth. Be that biblical truth that is very clearly delineated and specific, and there's a ton of it in the Bible about what Christians should do, or be that biblical truth that is in general and can be applied to the situation you're looking at. The idea is this. If you have absolutely no biblical basis or truth on which to defend your choices, why are you doing it? You don't want to be self-willed. You want to do everything to the glory of God. So in the realm of moral issues, ethical issues, obedience issues, you need to trust God and intelligently proceed and ask the question, what does the Bible say? Does it speak to this issue specifically? Does it speak to this issue generally? And then what you do, once you're convinced then you do your duty, convinced that you have biblical truth supporting it, and you leave the results in God's hands. Now, you can apply that to elections. You can apply that to your family situation, your marriage, your parenting, your, your work situation that you're going to run into tomorrow morning. And by the way, there are a lot of people in the world that are very suspicious of Christians. And I actually understand why. You might be surprised at why, but let me, let me, let me explain it to you. I, I'm, I'm not surprised that a lot of people are suspicious of Christians because we are simultaneously seen as a blessing and a curse to society. In the first century, the time that the book of Acts was, was being played out, Christians were model citizens of their earthly cities. They were working for the glory of God. They were working for the good of mankind. They were a blessing to the multitude. History attests that they were. History plays that out. You, you read even Jewish historians of the time and you will see how uprightly and righteously and biblically Christians lived and died. You will see this. But at the same time, and we see this in the book of Acts, at the same time, they were seen as a group bent on undermining the basic fabric of society. They served a sovereign, they served a king, Jesus, who, claim, who, who saves from sin and demanded total allegiance. Now, Jesus himself said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, under God, what is God's. But following Jesus, and according to Jesus and his apostles, following Jesus, according to Jesus and his apostles, spells death to idolatry, puts righteousness, God's righteousness, on display to a waiting and watching world and brings God's word to bear in the public square. That's what following Jesus means, according to Jesus and his apostles. It shakes up the status quo. It should shape society. We should be making an impact in the world. Back in those days, in, in, again, in, in the book of Acts time, in the first century, Christians were both good and bad for business, as usual. Whether you made a killing off of silver shrines or swindled the common man at the tax booth, uh, Christians were seen as either a hindrance or a help. And nothing much has changed. Nothing much has changed. Except for this. There are a lot of professing believers in the Lord Jesus, who would rather blend in than stand out.
that we're afraid to lose our position. We're afraid to lose being liked. And it is quite the opposite of being a lamp set up on a lampstand, salt and light in the world, a lamp shining brightly on a lampstand, or a city on a hill. It's quite the, the opposite of that. It's quite the opposite of letting your light so shine before men that they would see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This is our calling as Christians. I don't know if you knew that, but you know, that verse let your light so shine among men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Uh, that's risky business, and it doesn't mean like live really good in front of Christians so they'll think you're awesome. What it means is live before the world in such a way that, that they see your life and make the connection that God ought to be glorified. Because instead of self-seeking, we should be self Forgetting, we should be self-sacrificing. In fact, go with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Paul has just said that in verse 36 of chapter 11, from him, from God, and through God and to him, be the glory forever. From, from him and through him and to him are all things, and to him be glory forever. There is a, an overarching truth that all Christians need to latch onto that, that from God and through God and to God are all things, and that we must give him glory forever. And then he says this in, in verse 1, which is, by, by the way, based on, on believers trusting in God's mercy. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's your reasonable worship here on earth. What are Christians to do while they're here on earth? Basically yield their lives to God, to wake up every morning and say, your will be done. Not my will, Lord, but your will be done. And then actually to live in accordance with that desire instead of just like grabbing the steering wheel all the time and saying, I've got this. Paul is appealing to believers and appeals to us to present our bodies a living sacrifice. This is the heart response that God wants from every believer. What pleases God, total yieldedness. I've got a little plaque, a little old antique plaque, and it says this on it. You've probably heard this before. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And the idea here is that just like Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And when he says that he doesn't count his life of any account to himself, he's saying, I'm not going to be self-seeking. People may have said that Paul was like that. There's a temptation to be self-seeking, but we, we, must, we must deny ourselves. Let's move on to the third temptation. The first is to you can help me with this because sometimes I don't remember things immediately. The first temptation is to be what? Careless. careless. And instead of being careless, we need to be careful, take heed, watch over our lives and also fellow believers, and, and especially for the leaders in the church to do this. The second temptation is to be what? Self-seeking. Instead of being self-seeking, we should be self-forgetting, self-sacrificing. And here's temptation three, verses 31 and 32. The temptation is to compromise our conviction. To compromise our conviction. Verse 31 says, Paul says, stay alert, be alert. It's kind of like that watchful word, but different. The idea is staying awake. The idea is like you're a firefighter on call 24 hours a day and you're gonna be ready at a moment's notice to go and save people's lives. The idea is that you would would continually be watchful. It's in the present imperative. It implies a continual watchfulness. Be on the alert. Be a watchman. Be remembering, he says, that for three years, I didn't cease night and day to admonish you. It doesn't mean that Paul never sleep, slept. It meant that he 
was continually, consistently doing this, and he was admonishing them. Very strong word. To admonish means to, to instruct someone who has gone astray and tell them about the danger of where they're going. It's like a, a parent running after a child who's going into harm's way and saying, no, come back, and, and grabbing them and actually pulling them out of harm's way. And the idea is to tell the, the one who has strayed to return, come back. He says, I admonished you, and I did it with tears. Did you notice that he did it with tears because he loved them so much? Verse 32, he says, I commend you. Literally, I commit you. I'm giving you over to something, to someone here, to, to God. I'm committing you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those that are sanctified. The temptation would be to compromise conviction, and, and isn't it easy as believers to let our guard down? Isn't it easy to downplay biblical truth? This is a problem in the church. This is a big problem in the church of Jesus Christ. Saying we believe the Bible, but not standing for the Bible. And there's a host of things where we're just afraid to rock the boat. We're afraid to change the status quo. We're afraid to identify ourselves. In verse 20 of the same passage, and also in verse 27, Paul says to, to them, I did not shrink, which means I didn't draw back in fear, which means I spoke boldly. He said, I, I did not shrink from telling you everything that was profitable. Literally, everything that would give you an advantage, everything that would give you an alley-oop, that would just set you up to succeed in the Christian life, I didn't hold that back from you. And he says, I didn't shrink, I didn't draw back in fear, I spoke boldly about giving you the full counsel of God. Everything God wants you to know. Because Paul was convinced of the power of Scripture. He was convinced that it is able to build them up. It was able to give them the inheritance. Just like James says, it's able to save you. Paul was convinced of the sufficiency of the Word of God. Go over to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Probably the clearest picture of the sufficiency of Scripture in Scripture. Psalm 19, we'll begin at verse 7. Sometimes I think we, we look in all the wrong places for sufficiency. We're looking around the world and we're trying to grab onto something that would be solid and we're ignoring the word of God. Here's what it says in Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. And what you may not know about this passage is that each one of those things, the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandment, the fear, the rules, that's another name for the word of God. Those are names for the word of God. And then you see the word of God's effects. The word of God revives your soul. It makes the, the simple wise. It rejoices your heart. It enlightens your eyes. It helps you see clearly, spiritually. It endures forever, and it's righteous altogether. This is the sufficiency of the word of God. I think a lot of Christians, they, they say, well, we, we, we think the, the word's powerful, but they don't really realize that it is, it is sufficient and that it is authoritative and is binding upon our lives. When scripture speaks, God speaks. And that should settle the matter for us. I was tested early on as a college student at Cal State Long Beach in 1982 when I became a believer of whether I was going to, whether I was going to um, let my convictions go or not. Whether I was going to take this, this newfound book that I had realized is fully true and, and without error and powerful, this book that was changing my life because it's the word of God, not the word of man, it's the word of God, and, and I had the temptation put before me over and over and over again to let my convictions go, to compromise the truth. 
And I know since that time I've been tempted time and time again to, to crumble and compromise my convictions, just like you are on a daily basis. Every one of us is faced with these, with these dilemmas. Even amongst Christians, do you realize that? Even amongst Christians, there's the temptation in a fellowship of believers to let your convictions go. I love 2 Timothy 1.14. This is the verse that you should memorize. This is the verse that you should underline in your Bible, circle it, whatever you need to do. And I tell people all the time nowadays, especially as I'm teaching my Wednesday night Bible study, I say, look, memorization of scripture is not just for kids. Kids, you're awesome. Thank you for leading the way. Especially if you're on Awana, you're leading the way and memorizing verses. But adults, you need to memorize the word of God. You need to hide God's word in your heart that you would not sin against God. Amen? So here's a great verse for you. 2 Timothy 1.14. Guard through the Holy Spirit dwelling in us the treasure, literally the good deposit, entrusted to us. That's the Bible, that's the gospel, that's, that's what we need to stand firm on and abide in Christ and his word. Guard through the Holy Spirit dwelling in us the good deposit entrusted to us. The temptation is to, is to cave in compromise our convictions let's go to number four number four verses 33 to 35 the fourth temptation not just to be careless not just to be self-seeking not just to what's the third one to compromise our convictions but to be greedy temptation four to be greedy verse 33 i coveted no one's silver gold or clothes those were the signs of wealth in those days paul says in verse 34 i ministered to my own needs and others we got to remember that we got to work hard and help the weak. And verse 35, just like Jesus said, it's better to, it's better to, to give than receive. And what you see here is that Paul was not covetous. He didn't consider his life precious. Jesus was his treasure. Therefore, he didn't seek other people's treasure. The love of money was not the root of all sorts of evil in his life. He set his sights on the things above, not on the things on earth. But what happens with us? We get greedy for money, and not only money, but for people and possessions and ideas and more. I like how Martin Luther put it. If silver and gold are things evil in themselves, then those who keep away from them deserve to be praised. But if they are good creatures of God to use both for the needs of our neighbor and for the glory of God, is not a person silly? Yes, even unthankful to God if he refrains from them as though they were evil? They are not evil, even though they have been subjected to vanity and evil. If God has given you wealth, give thanks to God and see that you make right use of it. Give thanks to God and see that you make right use of it. The problem is not money, but it's use. The problem is not possessions, but it's use. The greedy misuse the world by striving to acquire more and more and more for themselves. The legalistic will say, I'm going to just renounce it all. And guess what? Both of them are insecure because their trust is placed in their own self-achievement rather than in Almighty God. And the neighbor is neglected. Don't we love to orchestrate our own atmosphere? By the way, even in the election, people are going to tell you that it's really all about choosing the kind of world you want to live in. Do you realize how self-seeking that thought actually is? We're supposed to do our duty. We're supposed to do what is right. We're supposed to pray for all who are in authority that we would live a quiet and, and godly life without uh, the, uh, the leaders coming down and, and impinging upon Christians and, and their, their giving of the gospel. But isn't it interesting that we buy into the idea that we could orchestrate the kind of life that we want? A lot of people don't have that choice. And a lot of people don't realize, professing believers don't realize that Jesus is preparing for us a country that we will spend eternity in, that our citizenship is in heaven, that yes, we are to, to live here on earth and to occupy whatever space God gives us to the glory of God until Jesus returns or he takes us home, whichever comes first but we are citizens of heaven and if we want to make a difference 
in the world, then we need to care more about people than things and do everything to help and deny ourselves and bless others. Let's look at the last temptation. The last temptation, it's in verse 36. I want you to see that verse. Um, it's, it says this, he, he knelt down and prayed with them. You're like, well, where's the temptation there? You know, they're praying, this is great. The temptation for believers is to live with division. To live with division, to stir up dissension and strife, to fan the flames of disunity, to fracture the body, to, to let unreconciled relationships just fester. Because you see, when it says that after Paul said all the things he said, that he knelt down and prayed with them all, you can't pray with those that you're holding things against. You can't, it's a sham, that prayer is false. But here's what happens in a lot of our lives, we, we live with junk for so long we start thinking it's normal. It's like cancer, it's harmful, it's repulsive, it's offensive, and we think that our life is normal because somehow maybe God doesn't understand or see or care, and he does. 2 Timothy 2.17, Paul says, those who bring divisions in the body, their talk will spread like cancer. That means it's gonna go on in, underneath the surface where you can't see it until one day it breaks out, but it's been there all along just eating things away from the core. James 4.1 tells us what causes fights and quarrels among you. Is it not your passions that wage war in your members? You can be the quietest person in the church or the loudest person in the church, but you might have passions of waging war in your members. Some people, they have this hair trigger of a conscience. Their conscience is so tender, and they just, they're just like, they, they know what, that something goes wrong, and they just make it right with people. But then there's other people who have calluses for a conscience, and, and they don't realize that James 4, 6 says that God gives grace to the humble, that he opposes the proud and that we are to submit to God and resist the devil so that he would flee and stop harassing us, and that we are to draw near to God so he would draw near to us. Do you know that in over 30 years of pastoral ministry, there's one thing I've encouraged believers to do more than any other thing? And it's the number one thing that most Christians are unwilling to do. I struggle with this too. It's to go to whomever you need to go to and make things right. To not be content to live with division. To not be content to live with a semblance of health that really is very unhealthy. To, to love Jesus and trust him to work through relational issues. Go with me to Matthew 23. Excuse me, Matthew chapter 5 at verse 23. Excuse me. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 23. Here's what it tells us. This is the words of Jesus. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, that's, you're at fault and your brother has something valid against you, leave, verse 24, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The idea is this, it's very simple, there's no wiggle room. Stop, go, reconcile, return. How many of us just always ignore that? And we wonder why our life is all gunked up and why we don't have freedom to go preach the gospel because we have issues with people in the body of Christ. Here's the key indicator. If your heart is tender and humble, you'll go do this. But how much lag time between the relational break and you going to reconcile is there? Is it hours? Is it days? Is it years maybe in some cases? Now turn over to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, I'm just going to read you one verse, one verse, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, now your brother's at fault, they've sinned against you, what are you supposed to do, what's your responsibility as a believer, go and tell him his fault, now Galatians 6 verse 1 comes in play here, where those who are, you know, in the right, maybe those who are spiritual, goes with the spirit of gentleness and corrects those who are in opposition, looking to themselves lest they be tempted too. You don't go proud of heart here, you go humble of heart. And you go to your brother and you tell him his fault. 
here's the key, between you and him alone. What do people do? They go politic behind the scenes and they talk to all these people. I'm just gathering facts. I just need to figure things out. I'm not gonna go to them. And what happens? We're bold as lions behind their backs and timid as chickens or turkeys face to face. Like, walk, 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 right? I don't even know what a turkey sounds like, but I know what a chicken sounds like. See, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Case closed. No one besides you and God and your brother need to know about it. What do we do? What do we do? We don't want to take the first step, and so we muddy the waters, and we necessitate further steps in the Matthew 18 process. The way it's supposed to go is you go to your believer, friend, brother, and, and with an issue and you reconcile, case closed. Only hardness of heart requires further steps. And do you know how fractured fellowship messes up a church? I, by the way, I don't know of any big thing going on at Grace Church of Orange. I can preach a sermon like this with a clear conscience, with, a, with, with basically going, I don't know, but I know this, we're all fallen and, 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 and fractured in places, and, and yes, we become bold as lions in private and timid as chickens in public. And I've been guilty of that. I need to repent of that. We all need to repent of things like this. I don't know how many times, you know, Ephesians 4.29 comes to my mind. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. Only such a word is as good for edification, according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. That's how we measure our words in Christ about brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't know how many times I've spoken words that I ought not to have spoken. How many times I've thought thoughts and done deeds that I shouldn't have done. And it's easy for us to say this, isn't it? What does it matter what I do or say in any given moment? Well, it matters a lot because I can't get Jesus' words in Matthew 12, 36 out of my mind. Jesus said, we will give an account for every word carelessly spoken. When Christians do not resolve personal issues with each other, they're not free to give the gospel. They're hindered, they're shackled, they're hobbled, they're hamstrung because Satan has deceived us into thinking we're healthy when we are sick. But how healthy would every church be, every Christian be, if we allowed Jesus to clean, heart, clean house in our hearts? That he would actually clean out the junk and the lies and the regrets and the personal injuries and have every burden lifted. Wouldn't that be awesome? This is what Jesus promises to his people if they would just trust him and do what he says. We have all been hurt, injured, to one degree or another by people who at one point or another were insensitive or mean-spirited, and we've done the same. I love what Samuel Rutherford wrote in his little book, The Loveliness of Christ, he said, there is no sweeter fellowship with Christ than to bring our wounds and our sores to him. There's no sweeter fellowship with Christ than to bring our wounds and our sores to him. It matches up with 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. You give him your wounds and your sores and you go and be reconciled. Whether you're the offending party or not, you acknowledge the sovereignty of God, you acknowledge the providence of God in orchestrating human affairs, you, you acknowledge that Jesus is the only answer, you acknowledge that you can't do anything apart from Jesus, so it behooves you to go to Jesus with your, with your issues and your heart conditions. And your response to November 8th, and how you choose to think, speak, and act on November 9th and onward. And by the way, real quick, how will you respond to the election in light of a decision you don't want? Will you mope? Will you complain? Or will you, as a believer in Jesus, trust God's providence, pray for all who are in authority, and live in humility? And how will you respond to a win Will you do the victory dance over your supposed enemies? Or will you trust God's providence, pray for all who are in authority, and live in humility? And how will you apply that to all the other choices you have to make in life? Work and 
family and marriage and singleness and parenting and citizenship and stewardship and your discipleship to Jesus. As I close, let me just say this. There is only, I say this all the time, there's only one answer. Jesus Christ, because of what he did at the cross, God in the flesh, willingly taken on our punishment and our sin, and the full wrath of God went on him instead of us, and there you have divine substitution, there you have divine satisfaction, there you have amazing mercy and grace, and, and the basis for our salvation, because Jesus himself, 1 Peter 2.24, bore our sins in his body on the cross. He bought our freedom with his blood at the cross, and so we should not live in slavery. Galatians 5.1 says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. John 8, if the Son shall set you free, you shall be what? Free indeed. Love how you know the word. Paul was free to preach the gospel because he wasn't hindered by unconfessed sin. He wasn't un hindered by unreconciled relationships with fellow believers. He wasn't harboring hate and animosity. He wanted to help others, and so as a result, he had a gospel impact in a godless culture. That's what we want. True love leads to true liberty, and the beauty of Christ, beauty of Christ breeds beautiful fellowship. So don't fall prey to these temptations. Don't be careless. Be careful. Don't be self-seeking. Be humble. Don't com compromise your convictions. Stand firm on the word of God, and don't be greedy. Deny yourself. Don't live with division. Be reconciled. Because I tell you what, I know all of us want beautiful fellowship with fellow believers in Christ. It's possible only because of beautiful Jesus. Amen? Lord, thank you that even though you had no form or majesty that we would look at you and no beauty that we should desire you because you on the cross took our punishment. Thank you, Lord, that with the psalmist we can say, I've asked for one thing. That's what I want that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you went to the cross and you made yourself to be not beautiful, to take the ugliness of our sin so that we could dwell in your house and gaze upon your beauty. We thank you, Lord, that you are doing what you want in our hearts. We want to be yielded to you and that our love for you would be expressed in love for your church and displayed to a waiting and watching world. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.